Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This week, we're excited to speak to Chris Arnotti. He's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris has a really interesting story. He's the former Wall Street trader. He's a physics PhD. He abandoned his career just to go photograph and talk to people. Started off in the Bronx. He ended up walking and traveling the entire lengths of this country. And the interesting thing about Chris is he never intended to become a political figure. But when 2016 was happening, he decided to tell everybody that they didn't really understand what was happening in the rest of this country. And I think that that's what makes him very interesting to talk to. Yeah, and he was great to talk to because after the election, a lot of people sort of said, let's go out into Trump country. Let's go to Wisconsin. Let's go to the Midwest and see why people didn't vote the way we expected them to. But he's very clear that this book isn't about Trump country. It's not about Trump voters. It's actually about people in urban regions. It's about the Bronx. It's about Brooklyn. It's about Bridgeport, Connecticut. But it's also about the Midwest, too. His central idea this book is about people who don't buy into our system anymore, that are non-voters. So the other thing that he really did that was so useful for us as a show was he brought this construct, the idea that we have a front row and a back row America. Think of a classroom. The way that we can explain a lot of our divisions today is that we have the people in the front who have the best jobs, who went to the fanciest schools. Now, in the back row, you have people who are more rooted in their communities. They're people who don't necessarily have even gone to college or even graduated from high school. And if we don't understand that there's a division along those lines, we're going to really have a hard time understanding our country. One of the best parts of the conversation was when he talked about expertise, and he talked about how a lot of front-row America, as he explains in the episode, are just utterly convinced of their expertise in matters that don't really have any technical expertise. And he, he talks, he uses the analogy of a pilot, with a pilot needs to actually know how to fly an aircraft. But in a lot of these other fields in front-row America, they, they, they come down to these intangibles, in which are so... The expertise is so out of step with the everyday, what he calls the lived reality of so many people in back row America. And it's that was what 2016 really was a reckoning of front row America with that experience. That's what the presidency of Donald Trump is about. And here at The Realignment, what we try and do is delve into the policy ideas that could be responsive to the concerns of back row America and heal the divide in this country. Let's dive in. Chris Arnotti, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. So, Chris, I mean, the reason we wanted to have you on, you're one of these kind of original realignment figures. You spent the last eight years, you've been chronicling left-behind parts of the country, culminating in, in this book that we have before. It's Dignity, It's Seeking Respect in Back Row America. And we spent a lot of time on the show discussing the regions and the populations that your book chronicles that you've been talking about on Twitter now for quite some time. Now, you're I think your background itself is so interesting, and I, I want to make sure that everybody really understands the genesis of this book. So you were a former Wall Street trader. You're Johns Hopkins physics PhD. You left your career in 2011 just to interview and photograph photograph left-behind people across the country. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What made you decide to do it? And why you started it in 2011? That, that's not a hot time, if you will, to, to jump on to the Americans that are being left behind. Well, maybe train. it's a hot time to leave Wall Street, though. Yeah, so yeah, I guess yeah, there's yeah. a question so, about that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a hot time to leave Wall Street. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you again for having me. Um, it's hard to summarize kind of like why I did what I did. I mean, I've been asked that question multiple times. I don't know if I have a good answer mm. other than I was really tired of Wall Street. Um, 
the financial crisis helped me become even more tired quicker in Wall Street. <laughs> um, and not in the ways that kind of are traditional, meaning it didn't impact me personally. I did well during the financial crisis. I wasn't feeling like I had to leave for, for financial reasons. Um, but prior to the financial crisis, even though I was, um, you know, I've been banking for 15 years um, as, a, as a bond trader, if, I think if you had asked me prior to the financial crisis if what I was doing was good or bad, I would have just said neither. It's just benign. But after the financial crisis, I was pretty sure that what we were doing was not good. Mm. Um, and I thought other people on Wall Street would have the same epiphany. And, and very few did. And that was kind of gave me a big distance between me and the industry. I started thinking about the industry very much differently. I started thinking about the way I think very differently. Mm. Um, and how we on Wall Street and how a lot of people who are like what I call the front row, um, elites, um, inter- cognitive elites, if you will, um, how they think about things. They think about things very very quantitatively, very focused on data. I mean, I literally was somebody who for 20 years sat on front of screens looking at blips of data and making bets on it and not really caring about the consequences beyond my po- my bottom line, my pocketbook. And I started to think that the way we thought about the world, how we thought about things just quantitatively through spreadsheets, through PowerPoint presentations was not the right way to think about things. And that probably the, we needed, I, need, I needed a different way to think about things. And that was what is basically ethnography, going out and talking to people, mm-hmm. getting, getting, getting out of the, getting away from the computer and going out and talking to people and the people impacted by you know, the, the decisions that we made. Um, and it, was, it wasn't it was as planned as that. It just kind of, that was the evolve. That's how my, my thinking evolved. It was just, you know, it was also me just wanting, I, I would go for 20 mile walks, um, just, you know, just Eat across people. New York yeah. City. Yeah. And, uh, and I am a photographer, so um, during those walks, I brought my camera and I take pictures of people. And eventually the people, when I took a picture of them, would want to, would tell me their stories. And then that became much more interesting. So something that we talk about in the introduction is the idea that after 2016, it became very cool, very hot to sort of go on safari, to sort of go out into the places that people sort of said were Trump country or rural America. You obviously started this in the early 2010s, so your project was never sort of framed that way, and I doubt you thought of it that way. What do you think distinguishes what you did in terms of taking yourself as a cognitive elite and like going off into places you wouldn't normally go from a lot of sort of post-2016 populism analysis? This was, it was, it was never planned to be a book. It was never planned to be anything but me thinking about just going out and talking to people. There, there, there was no, it, started becoming a plan around the election only because the election was was out there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, some people, you know, cartoonishly say the, the book is about Trump voters. It's not, it's, you know, it's about non-voters. Yes. <laughs> I mean, right. it's about people who don't vote. And this book was, this project was never about politics. It was always about poverty. It was always about addiction. It was always about listening to people. And it just so happened that the places I went Places that were um, f- were primarily um, left behind, depressed, um, filled with uh, filled with drugs, filled with poverty, were places where Trump was resonating. Yeah. The white communities very early, and I kind of accidentally got into politics because, like any, you know, like like a lot of front row elites, I was also on Twitter mm-hmm. while I was doing this project, and it became this real sense of frustration that I was seeing 
all these, I guess, are now just admissively called blue check marks. Yes. Having opinions about the election that were just so clearly wrong. (laughs) So let's get into this real quick. So you've referenced front row and back row. That's sort of your intellectual construct. Can you, let's tell the viewers about like how, like, what does that mean? Like it's a classroom, but let's go into it. Um, So what I started realizing when I was doing this and the project began in the Bronx, basically. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a neighborhood that was 99%, um, Latino. So not Trump country. Not Trump yeah. country. <laughs> and, um, AOC country. And that's where, yeah. and, and, and that's where I spent three years. Yeah. Um, it overlapped a little bit of with, with AOC's district, but um, it was, it was supposed to, basically it was on addiction and homelessness. But as I started going beyond the Bronx to, to Bridgeport, to um, Portsmouth, Ohio, to all these places, I started realizing that the similarities were very strong between a Bronx and a Portsmouth. I mean, there was racial differences. There was a rural urban thing, but they were, they were similar. And they were, they were distinct from my old life as a banker in one very important way, which was education, education, education. That the divide I was seeing in the country, and I had, I had this really weird experience of doing this project for three years while working on Wall Street, where I was literally during the, during the day trading on, on, on Wall Street mm-hmm. and at night in crack houses. Right. And so... The stark divide I was seeing, I started realizing was first you see the racial divide, then you see the you know economic divide. But then I started realizing that the much more, to me, the much more important divide and one that we didn't speak about that much was education. That the people I, by and large, was spending time with had all similar backgrounds in the sense that they, they probably didn't go to college. And if they did go to college, it was a community college. And if they did do anything after that, it might have been a trade school. And it might have been maybe University of Alabama eventually. Mm -hmm. And all the people who were yelling at me on Twitter or my banker friends had all done this, were were racially diverse, you know, come from India, come from, come from Uganda, (laughs) Brazil, but they all had a similar background as well, which is they all had gone to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or Cornell and had a very similar experience post high school. And that, that divide was much stronger, as strong as the other divides I've seen in the country. And so I started, I came up with a quip that the bankers, the lawyers, the blue check marks were the front row, and the people I was spending time with were the back row. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a very, it's an interesting construct. What it is is really a story about class, is what you're saying yeah. there. And, and it's 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 beyond that. But I, I wonder, is it David Good? Is it Goodyear? David Goodhart. Goodhart. He has this, you know, this right. uh, term, somewheres and anywheres. Why front row versus back row? Somewhere and, and anywhere. Specify what somewhere and Somewhere and anywhere is, is very much like, you know, somewhere is somebody who's rooted within a community and, 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 and has distinct ties and maybe a nationality. And in anywhere is, you know, a, a rootless, cosmopolitan elite uh, i think jd vance likes to tell us he was our first ep- first episode of the podcast go back and listen to that if you haven't um in in which you know uh, some people some person in new york city might feel more comfortable having dinner with somebody in france than they would somebody from west virginia despite the man the fact that the west virginian might be his own countryman so what front row and back row specifically was it just you know something that you found is purely a product of education or is it uh, the class story, what, what is it about that, that that really resonates with you? I think the education is yeah. what forms the root of all those other things. Okay. Mm-hmm. So education comes first in the sense that amongst the educated elite, the front row, mm. and that, that was my old life. That was my Wall Street life. That was my um, PhD in physics life, um, are just as comfortable in Mayfair, England as right. they are in Manhattan. Yeah. Not, not, excuse me, not Manhattan. They're not comfortable yeah. in Harlem. They're comfortable yeah. in Soho. Yes. 
you know, so you, yeah. it's, very, it's, very, it's very, very local. And so yeah. the problem with when people talk about the, you know, I spent three years with the Bronx. That's 15 minutes from the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. That is not the urban elite. No, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's very, very micro local. And so it's not geographical because, again, I think somebody in the, I think, I think a, I think a half Dominican, half Puerto Rican kid who grows up, grows up in the South Bronx has, a, has a lot more in similarity with a white kid from Portsmouth, Ohio, than most, than they, than they do to a bond trader yes. <laughs> in Harlem and, and, um, and, in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And I think the, I think the bond trader in Harlem has more, more in common with the professor of sociology at Princeton, yeah. um, because their worldview is very similar. Now, when you talk about the somewhere versus nowhere, I get into that in my book when I talk about one of the things that distinguishes the people in the front row, i.e. the educated elite, is that they really don't have a sense of place. Place is, um, is just something you just you, you dispense with when necessary yes. to, to move on in your career, just like I did as, you know, I, I, I moved multiple times in my life and I would do it again. And all of us have. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and whereas in the back row, one of the things, you know, I spend a lot, a lot of time in the book in places like New York City. And one thing that fascinates me, you can go to the outer boroughs of New York City. You can go to some place like Diker Heights. Um, you can go across the river here in D.C. to, yeah. um, to east, east D.C., and you'll find people who don't leave their neighborhood. Who, you know, I, I, there are people in Diker Heights who haven't gone in, quote, into Manhattan in 20 years. Mm -hmm. So there are people who live locally in urban settings. Yeah. But the living, what it means, what it means to be kind of, Place matters to you. So one of the things that fascinated me when I was, you know, what, when it struck me was on about my, you know, I don't know, a thousandth interview. When you, I would say to somebody, like, why didn't you move? And they'll go, they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, what do you mean? Why would I move? Like, everything is here. Um, or I would say to somebody, um, you know, I'll be interviewing them, wrapping up the interview. So I said, let me get this right. So you, you've lived here all your life. They go, no, I haven't lived here a life. He goes, I, I, I grew up 15 miles down the road. Now wow. I live here. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm from Oregon. This is, yeah. That's what I mean by you moved. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it just struck me as like the sense of place is so important. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I get back in the book is I, I, I build it out a little bit more. And what I call, I call a, I call place. Um, the, the, I guess the, what's his name? Goodwin? Good, Goodheart. Goodheart calls yeah. it, um, the somewheres, people who have a large sense of place, that's what I call a non-credential form of meaning. That's something that's gifted to you at birth. It's non-economic. You don't have to do anything. You know, you don't it's have there. to have a resume. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And right. so, and so those things are, there, there are two, there are three of those things that I document in the book of being extraordinarily important to the back row, um, faith, place. And the one that's very touchy is race, yeah. racial identity. Those all, those all three, don't require credentials and by and large the front row doesn't value them as much as the back row does and the problem with that is when you devalue those things that's very elitist because it is it's, it it takes away things that we give basically poor people yeah so why is so why would you say they devalue them because it's not because they're in because education is all that matters mm -hmm. um 
And education matters because of gaining wealth. It's all about getting wealth. It's all about material forms of possessions. It's, it's at, at its core, it's a materialism dressed up in this kind of faux meritocracy that's, that it, it says that the way you get more things is if you have more education. Mm. So you said the word, now we have this like an alarm going off somewhere, meritocracy, right? Yeah. So the sort of pushback <laughs> to what the story you just told is that, yeah, we can attack the meritocracy and we can say that credentialism and education are problematic, but the educational system we have now is what enables someone from you know the back row who was born in a rural part of the country to work hard and, you know, get educated then move and then participate in this system. Like me. Yeah. yeah. So like that's, uh, and, so, so and how do we like, balance those two yes. things? Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and so there's a lot of great things about the current system, mm-hmm. right? It, it, it's well intended. Yeah. I actually, where I differ from a lot of critics of it is I don't think, I think the people who, I think that I, I don't have any problems with the front row. Mm. I think by and large, I know them very well. I'm mm. one myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but I, I spent 20 years you know, f- working with the frontists of the front yes. rows. They're well-intended people. They actually think they're doing the right thing. But my problem is I don't believe they understand. They, so, when I, so going back to the introductions, like mm. when I started doing these things, mm. starting getting out there and talking to people, starting arguing with people on Twitter, I started realizing how much the front row doesn't get that there are huge problems in the back in these poor communities. And so despite their good intentions, they don't know how much damage is being done because they don't see it. And so you, so, yeah. the, so we talk about the meritocracy, but you only celebrate the people who, who succeed. You don't see the people who fail. So let's get into that. Let's further delve into the psyches of front row people. You say they don't really know what they're they're doing. I think if you're sort of saying, let's say you're a Harvard law grad who, you know, works at a good firm in DC and you do pro bono work, you would say, no, I support, I support, you know, uh, increasing aid to education. I support, they would say that they're not doing anything that holds people down. That we have one pathway to success. One. So that's the, this is the system you support then. One pathway to success. And you have to get on. It's like an escalator that goes up really quick. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you don't get on at four or five or six or seven, start building your resume, you're screwed. And when you hang out in the South Bronx, when you hang out in a barrio in El Paso, when you hang out in north side of Cleveland, um, north side of Milwaukee, or, or, or Plattsburgh, New York, and you see people who haven't had the, haven't had the, the haven't gone on to that escalator early, um, they're screwed because the front row only knows one level of success. In many cases, it's, it's a very um, patriarchal and patronizing way of thinking about things. It's, it's saying to people, I did it. This is what's successful for me. You need to do it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe you don't want to be somebody who spends their nights reading books. Maybe you don't want to be somebody who moves from, builds a resume, hops from job to job. Maybe you want to stay in your town, build your family, um, look at the mountains outside your, um, and, and, and celebrate. Go to a minor league baseball game. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it, it's a very narrow definition of success that not everybody is mentally built for. I um, mean, just, that's just not who they are. Mm-hmm. Or people don't want that. And so it's kind of, it's akin, it's akin to when people go into a poor neighborhood and patronizingly say, how can I help you? Or, you know, as of no, they, not, not saying how can I help you, saying, 
I'm going to help you do it this way and you need to do it as opposed to just listen. And maybe they don't, maybe they don't want to go, maybe they don't want to move and go to Princeton, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I always think about, and I mentioned in the book is this, is this young Mexican American woman, she's 18, I don't know, 19, 17. And she was sitting in the McDonald's in East LA. And I spent a lot of time in McDonald's and we can get in that later, but I'm in, I'm in, I'm in this McDonald's writing up my notes and, you know, and she eventually, she, she's there for the same reason I see a lot of people in McDonald's. She doesn't have, she's too poor to have Wi-Fi at home. So she goes at night, does her homework, plays on her Game Boy, just basically spends five hours a night at McDonald's. Um, and she eventually talked to me and I said, well, I'm from New York. And she goes, oh, I love New York. I want to go. I said, well, you know, you're going to college. Yeah. She goes, yeah, I, I really, but I said, you can go to, you know, she goes, but I can't, I have to stay here. I'm like, why do you have to stay here? She goes, well, I'm my mom's translator. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, her mom's the first, first. Yeah. Um, and as a lot of immigrant families know, mm-hmm. the oldest kid is the one who ends up being bilingual and, and yes. does everything. And so again, like, why shouldn't we value that as much? Is that person a failure? The, the young woman who stays home, stays, stays in the, her town and bypasses educational opportunities to be a part of the family. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, on the flip side, there are those kids who are tasked with being the adult in the family. That's true in a lot of South Bronx neighborhoods where the kid is the one who at age eight and nine has to make sure the mom appears at the court date, mm-hmm. <laughs> has to make sure the bill is paid so their electricity will be poured, pulled off because the mom might, might, be, might be having a problem with, with, with drugs um, or the stepdad. And I don't even know, want to know what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So these, these, there's a lot of kids who just have who don't necessarily want to do this, but also just can't. So, Chris, what you're what you're saying very much is articulating just how how out of step the life of front back row America is from the conception of front row. 2016, and I think the realignment what we talk about here is the reckoning of the front row with the election, right? And so, what the themes behind that election told the front row and their grappling of it. So, you you're a very astute observer of the back row, but turn your eye now to the front. How has the front row grappled with 2016? Have they learned any of the right lessons? I mean, <laughs> are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? Then you know, you're more encouraged today than you were in 2011 or more discouraged? It actually reminds me a lot of the financial crisis because yeah. that's why I giggle. Because when, I, when the financial crisis happened, there was, a, there, were the, there was a set of us on Wall Street who were kind of like saying, you know, this looks like it could end badly. <laughs> you know, could um, end badly. Yeah. You know, this over, over, over over quants, too much quantization, I, and I got a PhD in physics. So. And what is what, what's the quant stuff? Uh, well, sorry, what what like what's the quant sort of focus? Um, just complex financial products that people are you selling that people don't understand, um, shoving it down their throats. That could all end badly. This leveraged a forty-five to one. Um, and when it did end badly, some of us looked around and goes, "Oh, okay, well, the gig's up." Like the, these people. Uh, everybody will figure it out and we'll, we'll change. And of course, nobody changed. Yeah. <laughs> People put their head in the sand and just simply said, what, we didn't mess up? What do you mean? We didn't mess up. It was, it was those poor people who borrowed money. How dare them? <laughs> so there was no lessons learned from, from the financial crisis. And that was part of my distancing from the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Before, prior to the election, when I kind of, kind of said, you know, I think Trump has a chance here, I got made fun of, which is fine. And then... There are people out there who were like, oh, no, it's, you know, the chances of Trump winning is as much, if Trump wins, I'll, I'll eat a bug. Zero percent, yeah, right. <laughs> Huffington Post, zero, 99% chance. But, but just arrogance, right. including yes. the, the Clinton campaign, yeah. which cost them the election. But 
it's the same doubling down. They're, they're in denial of what happened. Um, a few people have, you know, changed, but in general, they're in denial. And it reminds me so much of the why. I mean, one of the, one of the dirty secrets of the financial crisis is the people most responsible for a financial crisis did the best out of it. Mm. Personally, mm. they made the most money. Similarly, I think that people who got the 2016 election the wrongest are doing pretty well now. <laughs> so that's, um, the, that's, the tr- that's the Trump bump at a yeah, major yeah. media publication. <laughs> um, but the lessons that I think I would hope should be is, is humility, mm. is this recognition that, look, you, you can, you, we're, we're sheltered, we're, sh- we're, we're sheltered, we're smart, but we're smart in one direction, which is generally a data approach, quantitative, a positivistic approach. Um, expertise is a sham. <laughs> and um, what makes you say that? I think that, that that's what irks, I think, front row America the most. They're like, well, you know, I have a PhD and so and so. I've been studying this for 25 years. Who are you to come and tell me that there, I don't there know are pl- anything? There are places uh, you have to be yeah. very careful about. There are technical fields where expertise clearly matters. Yes. Like physics, physics, yeah, uh, but, but, yeah, uh, but uh, better for me is building is, airplanes, b- right? Better, yeah. Yeah, it's just auto mechanics, right? Yeah, auto mechanics. Like you want somebody who knows what part goes where, right? And that's just that requires somebody who studies that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about foreign policy, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> foreign policy is not something where you you need to be an expert, uh-huh. and it's not technically it's not tech it's not a technical field. And I think that's similar. You have to be very careful where to d- draw the line between. It's it's that that I remember after the election when, you know, everybody everybody smugly did the cartoon about the guy the guy flying the airplane. I'm you know, remember that one mm-hmm. on the New Yorker cartoon yeah. about. Um, it was supposed to show about how experts matter. But again, that's a very different thing. A pilot is an expert. <laughs> that's a very technical field versus a, a much more nuanced field that's not technical, like foreign policy, like political science, yeah, like right. philosophy, right. <laughs> like th- things that where you're talking – basically anything where you talk about large-scale behavior of humans, we, we don't know anything really well. Mm. So and this is this is all useful because I think we're talking about the front row. But actually the front row is sort of diverse – in the sort of sectors we're talking about, because we focused on, you know, Wall Street, we focused on big law, D.C., East Coast, but up on the West Coast, you have the tech sector, which if we're talking about, because if you're, if I'm a techie, right, I hear you say college is outmoded, it's this sort of like one way up path. There are plenty of people and ex-Googlers, Facebook, Amazon, say, oh yeah, totally, our, our established institutions no longer work, so we don't actually think that there's a problem on our end. So what? So what does the sort of like tech front row get wrong? I don't know technology very well, and mm-hmm. so I'm very careful not to talk about it too much. Yeah. Um, but I think again, it, where there is a different, there's the expertise issue, which I have very strong opinions on. But then there's the issue of, and I think the bigger issue, and this is where I think the front row is really well intentioned, just doesn't get it. One of the things I keep saying about my book, what you know, after seven years of spending time, people. A lot of people, and especially on the left, don't understand the lived realities of the people they're advocating for. So that's where I think we're at, we're at, when, when tech people get it wrong, I think it's there, mm. which is they see when they when they extrapolate beyond their field, mm. they see people as these little these as units widgets basically. that yeah, can basically right. be moved around, and people aren't that. <laughs> yeah. So so it goes back. It's kind of how 
my critique of UBI is you don't understand humans if you think UBI is going to work. Mm. Let's explain what UBI is. Universal, uh, basic, universal income. basic income. Yeah, right. Um, because it doesn't address what I think is a much deeper issues. It's not just about money. It's about being valued. It's about feeling uh, 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 feeling social, <laughs> feeling a, a valued member of society. And UBI doesn't do anything to address that. But couldn't yeah. it be argued, to speak up for the UBI fans who are listeners, <laughs> can't it be argued that the whole point of UBI isn't that it's going to replace meaning and family, but it provides a floor. It says that, look, like, you know, okay, oh, so, I, I'm all look. Yeah, I'm all so, for I'm all for tar- I'm all for replacing the I'm all for UBI in th- in practice in the sense of a lot of our social safety net should be replaced by just giving people two thousand dollars a month in their in their checking account <laughs> mm. and just be over with it. Right. Yeah. Instead of this this million. That's the other thing you learn about poverty: the myriad of dumb rules that exist. The bureaucracy is is just it it harms poor people. And that's another example where I talk about the front row not understanding the back row. The lived realities of the people they're trying to advocate for. And again, they come from a good place. I don't want to yell at your front and yell listeners. Yeah. But they don't understand how poor people live. In aggregate, there's there's many front row people who do. <laughs> yeah. So let's 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 be fair here. So we've just let me give the example of that yeah. it fits with my book is McDonald's, mm-hmm. which is we were going to get there. Don't worry. Go, okay, yeah. but but no, but, yeah. but it's a McDonald's test. You know, do you see how do you see McDonald's? A lot of people in the front row, especially on the left, mock McDonald's as being all those things unhealthy, blah blah blah, bad for blah, but bad for the environment, bad for blank, but it's essential to poor people. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of my books points out right. is it's as as a, as as part of a lived reality of a poor person. You're a lot of times in McDonald's. The subtext before we move on to Sager's point, the subtext of a lot of our conversation has been about how left leaning liberal elites in coastal urban regions get a lot of these things wrong. How do you think the right Sort of like how do conservatives conceive of the, a lot of these communities in the wrong way? It's a great the, question. Um, again, my critique has generally been more of the left, even though I'm on the left, and that's because I thought because I think it's clear what the critique of the right is, which is it's libertarianism. It's it's the it's the just the heart the 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 not not talk about treating people as widgets, treat, treating labor as widgets. <laughs> mm. Just the whole just the whole dismissal of of people's right as workers, the whole idea of uh, putting profits first, the whole kind of um, predatory capitalism that I think, you know, I think the worst example of modern predatory capitalism can be embodied in Mitt Romney, who oddly a lot on the left kind of like, but um, his form of capitalism of basically do adding no value other than extracting, (laughs) extracting profits from companies by by destroying any culture they have and any any mm. any 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 non-economic value they add and just treating them like things on a spreadsheet to be kind of stripped of any humanity and turned into money I mean that's the right mm. <laughs> and, and so when we're talking about and, and then and then, yeah. and then as somebody who grew up in the in the South in the sixties and seventies, the whole civil rights issue, <laughs> right? I mean, that whole thing, yeah, that whole thing is, is pretty <laughs> yeah. central. Yeah. Because if you look at the coalitions now, they're they're not dissimilar to the civil rights coalitions. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Republicans as being anti civil rights, and the and, and the Democrats as being uh, the civil rights coalition of of educated whites and um, and minorities. Yeah. So I I, I want to turn to this McDonald's. Thing. I mean, it's what we're one of the things you're most famous for, which is you know you're going to McDonald's and kind of evangelizing for it as a, a central place and a, and a community gathering. First, just speak to that. But I also want to get to. I mean, we talk a lot about here about 
you know, about trade and China. And these things can be highly, you know, I mean, they're, they're highly abstract. But maybe talk more about how a person who may not know nothing about NAFTA, the rules of NAFTA and the arbitration rules within TPP can be so viscerally against these multilateral trade agreements. And, and just explain where that might come from. Right. As yeah. a foreign policy. Average. As a foreign policy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I can explain as somebody yeah. who knows all the rules why I'm against it, but I'll uh. explain. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't even know how to know how to begin yeah. this one. This is so um, one of the things that was, you know, one of the things I learned from listening was um, the front row does the well actually all the time. I call it the well actually. So they'll go into a community. So then I was that person when I went into these communities, mm -hmm. I would go in and inevitably I was always in a McDonald's because when you go into these communities, one of the few functional places is the McDonald's. It's not only functional, it's sought after. It's a I call it the community center, the town center for many places. Gary, Indiana, a place I document a book, 98% um, African-American community and probably 70% African-American community. Um, been made the butt of jokes for 30, 40 years since white flight. Right. Um, I spent, the McDonald's is a vibrant community center where people go to play dominoes, they go to hang out, they, they go to make friends, you know, they go to wash up, they go maybe to shoot up. Um, yeah. it, it, there's a lot going on in the McDonald's. And because it's one of the few places that doesn't have any rules about just accepting people on their own terms. And that, and it's also a place you can charge your Wi-Fi, you can use Wi-Fi, you can charge your phone, you can clean up in the bathroom, you can get an inexpensive meal. I mean, you, you know, try being a vegetarian in Gary, Indiana. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you end up, it's an expensive habit to have. It's nice, but it's expensive. Right. And the reality is you're going to end up eating Big Macs mm -hmm. from the two for five special. <laughs> um, but McDonald's, is essential to these communities because so much is left, you know. And so when you're, I'm in these McDonald's and it's one of the few, one of the few places standing. It's like the last man standing in so many communities where you can have a sense of community. And inevitably, not far from the McDonald's, maybe literally adjacent like it is in Milwaukee, there'll be empty fields with barbed wire mm -hmm. or maybe an old boarded up warehouse like in Danville, um, uh, Virginia. Um, and inevitably, you'll be talking to people and over, like I did on that, and inevitably they'll say something like, you know, like when did this, well, when that factory left, mm. <laughs> point to the empty lot. And I'd say like, when did it leave? Well, after NAFTA or in the, or in the nineties or, you know, maybe eighties. And then if I stay longer, I'll talk, you know, about my, my career and about, you know, TARP. And, yes. and this is really huge. Cause I want Sagar to yeah. come in on this. Yeah. We've talked in previous shows that the debate about why these institutions, these factories, these farms left is actually a huge one because it's sort of, it's not just about debating the 70s and 80s, it actually sort of determines what our sort of diagnosis and moving forward looks like, right? Because if this is trade policy, yes. which you've spoken about, or if this is sort of so, automation. So, so, yeah, so I mean, yeah. but, so the, you don't have that, those conversations never come up in the middle because what happens is they'll just simply, and I'll, I'll be, so I'll be that person. Yeah. I'll be that person who they say, well, I'll say, well, actually NAFTA's good. Did I will actually on the show? <laughs> it's I, like, well, actually, <laughs> um, it's cheaper for you yes. to buy a TV at Walmart. Yes. So aren't you happy? Yeah. But we're actually, you know, there's more growth going on now in yes. Portland right. or New York <laughs> city. So you should just get up and move and, right. and aggregate. Everybody's better. Yeah. But eventually 
you just stop saying that because you realize you're an idiot because you're sitting there and at town after town after town, you're seeing the, you're seeing the losses. You're seeing those things we did when we implemented NAFTA, when we said there were going to be losses that were going to be small compared to the gains, you know, the gains are going to be big. The losses are going to be small. So the sum of the two is going to be positive, but the, the, what they, what they didn't, what people didn't understand about the losses or didn't want to understand about the losses, it's not just about jobs. It's about the whole town imploding. It's about when the jobs go, people can't form families. When they can't form families, they have kids out of wedlock. When they have kids out of wedlock, there's just, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm okay. I'm okay for having kids out of wedlock. Stop. Jump. You know, people who sure. are going to listen to this are going to jump on me. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have the falling apart of these institutions. You have hope leaving and in, in, in comes drugs. And the whole way of life of these people has been destroyed. So it's not just a loss of a job. It's a loss. It's a the loss of a job cascades into a loss of a community, and so they, you know, it's like it's one of you know. So w why can't they see it? They can't see it because, I mean, like they've lost their life. They've lost their whole community, <laughs> and so it's easy to scapegoat scapegoat to to turn and say like, why is the factory gone? Why like you know? And then when they hear I'm a banker and we bailed ourselves out, like they're I've had I had like seven or eight people turn to me like. Why don't you bail us out when our factory left? <laughs> Which is the right question to ask. Yeah. Like, you know, and so when I get to the discussion with the front row about this, what frustrates me is there's a sense of over, over analysis of it, which is, you know, technologies marches on. What can we do? Which is the only time front row ever shrugs its shoulders about anything and treats it as inevitable. Our they always to do everything <laughs> but that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we, we, we can policy our way out of anything except for this technological advancement yes. that caused all these factories to leave and people who aren't us to be lose their jobs. <laughs> that one. <laughs> but the other thing is what frustrates me about the dialogue in politics is a lot of people don't care. And they don't need to care. They shouldn't need to care about politics. And, you know, I'm going to get yelled at, like, it's your right to mm -hmm. vote. You know, it's a right to be a citizen. And, and you, you hand you hand. that's part of the reason you vote for someone is for them to take care of the damn problem. You yeah. Know? This goes back to something you said earlier, which I wanted to ask you about. You referred to a lot of these people as non-voters. As, like, that's their category. They're not Trump voters. They're not, like, they're, they're, no, they're just non-voters. Why are they non-voters? Cynicism. Yeah. Cynicism. Ju I call it justified cynicism. It's mm -hmm. like... You know, I think about the number of people I met, and the ones that strike me in particular are the African American ones because it's hard to push back at them. Um, who they're much more blunt about it, about why they didn't vote in '16, and they're like, I, I forget the exact wording. I, variations of the fact there was a guy in Youngstown, I think it was, who he's like, I forget the exact wording was African American guy, 52, my age roughly, was like. We had, a black, we had a black president for, 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 for eight years, and nothing's changed here on this block, and his block mm -hmm. was all black. You know, the potholes are still there. <laughs> He's doing well, <laughs> speaking of Obama, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or the guy in Lumberton, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, North, Lumberton, North Carolina, who didn't vote. And he's like, and I, I put it on Twitter recently. I forget the exact quote again, which was, it's, you know, Clinton – Obama, Bush, it's all the same. <laughs> mm -hmm. There was this, you know, sense, sense of like, who cares? Like, nothing's changing, man. <laughs> like, Lumberton's been, Lumberton lost its textile mills in the 80s to Mexico to 70s, you know? Um, it's been going downhill since. 
and uh, it's one third Mexican. It's one third. Um, it's very interesting. It's one third Native American, one third African American, one third white. Um, and it actually went from a, it was an Obama place. Voted for Obama twice and voted for Trump. So it's wow. what I call mm-hmm. an OOT county. Yes. Um, but two things happened. A lot of the minorities didn't turn out mm-hmm. to the level they did for Obama. Some of that was just Obama had such a large increase. Um, but the other part was just people like the man I met who just like, I don't like, why? <laughs> yeah, they've lost faith. Like, and, and but that, that, I call that justified senators because so a lot of people are going to say, well, your vote doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. My vote doesn't matter. Your vote doesn't matter. Everybody knows that. No election has been run by one vote. Mm. It's a singular act that you hope in aggregate. And so it's easy for us to delude ourselves into thinking your vote matters. But when you're, things haven't changed, your vote doesn't matter. So I guess something that, and they know that. Yeah. And and and, and I apologize, no, no, but, no, but, please, but it's just yeah. it's just like, and then the other thing is, they don't want a lot of people don't want to, you know I liken the politics to I I use the NFL right, which is like, this is like an inside the NFL Sunday morning show right now. Yeah. Right. Right. Same um, ratings too. You know, yeah. Twitter's <laughs> Twitter's like a Jets Bills game parking lot. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Most people are like how most people treat the NFL, which is they'll tune in once a year to watch a game for four hours. Maybe, you know, they'll spend about a time. Like that's how people treat politics a lot. They just, they don't pay much attention. And I, I know people push back and say, well, they should. Yeah, they should, but they don't. Mm -hmm. And also like life's complicated, man. And it just feels like these problems, NAFTA, yeah. You know, all these debates we're having, was it China? Was it NAFTA? Was it technology? That's so distant from their lives. They just know that something happened in D.C. that screwed their town, <laughs> that took their factory away. And when they said, you know, hey, man, <laughs> what about What's our jobs? Yeah. You say, oh, it's better for you. Or here, here's, a pro, here's a targeted program. You can go to community college for four years and learn how to code. Mm-hmm. Or you should probably just rent a U-Haul and go to, you know, it's like, it's just, it's Leave just, the family plot behind and just go. <laughs> I remember one, one of the things I always remember is uh, it was in a Waffle House in, um, in somewhere in Louisiana. Um, and it was afternoon and it was two, two very back row African-American kid and a, and a white girl working, working. It was just me and them. And I was just listening to their conversation and they were, they were just talking about life. And he might have been 28, I don't know, and she might have been 24. And I remember him saying, he was a little upset because, like, you know, he's talking about the drama he had recently in his life. And he's, you know, because there's, like, an online fantasy game called Pathfinder, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so him and it, he, it was really funny for me because like, him and all of the McDonald's, the Walmart employees had gotten together for a Thursday night Pathfinder game, and somehow it turned into drama that got into work, and they couldn't do it anymore, and he was upset. You know, I love life, some things like that, yeah. like the Pat Thursday Night Waffle House Pathfinder game, uh, the drama. But but I remember him saying something like, and she turned to him and was like saying like, you know, well, what do you want to do? Like, you know, like why you, he goes, I just want a job that gives me enough money to buy a house, have a family, and then spend a little bit of time on my hobbies. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of Americans. Yeah. That's all they want. Is. And that they, that's all they, what's wrong with that? Nothing. So I, right. I think the thing that, and I, I liked your point earlier about how a huge problem of the right is sort of the libertarianism. So I don't want to 
echo libertarians too much when I ask you this, but what about personal responsibility, <laughs> right? So, because I, I say that sarcastically, but I mean it seriously in this case because we've talked about ways that front row America through their control of systems and expectations and frankly cultural norms has caused all these problems. But what, what do these people who are faced with cynicism and a lack of, I'm concerned we're giving them a lack of agency to improve their lives. So it's funny when I get down to, when it gets down to the core of my views, when me and like J.D. Vance will sit down and argue, like we, we share a lot in common, despite being very politically, but where we'll, where we'll just come to impasse will be that question. Okay. Mm. Which is, I'm a classic leftist, and I think people behave based on the political structures they find themselves in. And he's, it's all about personal responsibility. Mm. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that sure. him and him and That's what it comes right. down to. Right. So I, and this is where I, I, I get very frustrated with the left currently. When I was doing my work in the Bronx, the left loved me because I was showing that minorities and addiction is a function of the political structure that the people in the South Bronx, they, they it's racism, structural racism, um, which keeps um, up, which which allocates, um, which forces um, uh, minorities into communities with secondary everything, secondary job opportunities, secondary education, secondary all that. So when you look in that framework, you look at the social problems in these communities mm-hmm. as being a function of the political structures. But when you do that to white communities, the left freaks out, mm. which is to say that people, when you look at addiction and in white communities or how people vote <laughs> as a function of the political structures they find themselves um, operating in, then then currently the left doesn't, it tends to look at that and say, that's a personal responsibility mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, let's look at the, the world they operate in. Let's look at, um, let's look at um, the unfair system they face, et cetera, as being responsible, as, as basically being responsible for a lot of um, the issues we see in these communities. So I just have that, I just have a different view. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, yeah. I, I think at the very core, in aggregate, when you look at a group of people, you, I, I'm very loath to, ever, I, I, not only loathe, I will never blame atavistic behavior. When you look at a group of, beha- group of people doing something you don't like, mm-hmm. to assign it to laziness, like you know, the right used to do to, to minority communities, there are, there, are, there are so many people in poverty because they're just lazy, <laughs> mm-hmm. or or idiocy, mm-hmm. or weaknesses. I think you're doing it. I think that you're doing it wrong, and you should instead look at the political structures they operate in. Okay, so this has been really great so far. You've given us, I think, a diagnosis. We have a theory of the case here. What is the takeaway? Because we're Hudson, we're a think tank. Right. We're interested in policy here. Is it? More online education? Is it more subsidies for community colleges? Like, what is your takeaway? See, that's a, the biggest peop, fault people find in the book is I don't offer policy solutions because I think the problems are actually larger than policy. Mm-hmm. I think the, problem, the problems are, and I don't have a solution to this, which is so frustrating, which is I think we as a society are, are very divided between the intellectual elite and the people who are not allowed to be intellectual elite. And how we, what we find valuable in life. And I, and again, I think I would like the front row because there, and the reason I, I, I have suggestions for the front row more than the back row is the front row is in power. Yeah. <laughs> they control stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they, they make the rules. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
my suggestion to the front row is to is to get out of your bubble and to try to understand the lived reality. Because I again, I think you, I think you all listeners, if you're front row, are well intended. I, I like I, I think you're doing the right things. I think I have no qualms with how you live. I have no qualms. I I just think that you don't fully understand how bad the situation is. Some of you do, and I apologize mm-hmm. for ta- for lumping you in that category. How bad the situation is, and how. In some cases, the solutions we offer are patronizing. The whole idea of you're voting against your self-interest, as if you, the listener, knows better about somebody's own self-interest. Mm. That's very patronizing. Mm. So go there and listen and, and, and ask them, what is their own interest? <laughs> and then maybe reconfigure the system to allow other forms of meaning. So, you know, it, if I actually had to come up with policy solutions, and what, the, the biggest one I can think of is simplicity, man. Complex rules, bureaucracy harms the poor in many, in, in awful ways. Simplify the system. Simplify the, uh, the, the social safety net. Increase the social safety net, but simplify it. Well, I mean, I think that's no better note to end on. I think that that really does come down to, I think, the core difference. But ultimately, with your diagnosis, you've offered us, I think, a good view for people in the front row to at least try and understand what it's like in the back and and maybe question some of the assumptions that they have going forward in their day-to-day lives and, and maybe how they look at the 2020 election. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. coming. Thanks for joining us. If you want to learn more about Chris and the work that he's up to, you can read his book. It's available on Amazon. It's called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. He's also got a great Twitter feed. That's really where all of this began. It's at Chris underscore Arnadi, A-R-N-A-D-E. Quick announcement. We're nearing the end of season one with the close of 2019. We've been off to a really fantastic start with the podcast so far. We're really pumped for season two. We'll have much more about that next season next week's episode. See you next week. Thank you.